Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today's program is by listener request. So let's read the email. This is from Alec in uh, southern Utah, who says, My suggestion isn't really for a specific story, but rather an idea. We really need more science. While all the great history and book writing on Access Utah is nice, we need to be reminded just how well science is progressing in our own state, even. A suggestion up in Salt Lake is Jim Kirkland, state paleontologist. The man has discovered a great many dinosaurs, among them the famous Utah raptor. As we speak, he's working on uh, freeing a family of that creature from a block of stone. Down here in St. George, we have a dinosaur museum with two stupendous paleontologists working. They've recently come out with a book on their findings in this region, and they're always discovering more. A shift to science would be very welcome, and in this current political and social climate, necessary. That's what uh, Alex says. So, here you go, Alex. We have the uh, two authors of that book. The book is Tracks in Deep Time, the St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site at the Johnson Farm. And we bring in Gerald Harris. Uh, Jerry Harris is uh, Director of Paleontology and Science Department at uh, Dixie State University, advisor to the St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site at uh, Johnson Farm. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Appreciate you being with us. Uh, Andrew Milner, co-author of the book, is paleontologist and curator at the St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site at Johnson Farm. Welcome to you. Yes, thank you. Um, so let's uh, let's jump in with the uh, the exciting discovery of this uh, site. This is in St. George. Um, I don't know, uh, Andrew. Do you want to take this one? Yeah, it's uh, it was discovered right within city limits, um, and of course the area is built up right around the site. It's amazing how quickly the place has grown. So Dr. Sheldon Johnson uh, was leveling a hill on his property and accidentally discovered this natural cast of a dinosaur's footprint. So basically the track is sticking up off the rock's surface, and uh, his first impression was that the dinosaur was still in the rock and his foot was sticking out. Then as he started flipping over more of these blocks, he realized that he was actually looking at the infill of footprints. Yeah, amazing, amazing. He was, I think he was just trying to level a hill on his property, wasn't he? Yes, he was, yeah, and just happened to come across this bed full of tracks. And uh, he actually made the discovery on uh, February 23rd of 2000. So um, what happened next was extraordinary as well. I guess he could have sold these uh, fossils off. Uh, that sometimes happens. Yeah, he, he, uh, he that would have well been well within his legal rights to do. He could have sold them. He could have destroyed them. Uh, being on private property, he owns them. He could have done anything he wanted to, but... Um, his wife, Laverna, uh, was an educator, and so she gave him an appreciation for education, and the two of them decided to set the site aside uh, for scientific and educational purposes. And uh, so then, uh, Andrew Milner, you, uh, at, during the course of this, became, I think, one of three city paleontologists. Yep, that's right. Um, I, I was actually called in, actually, Jim Kirkland, uh, who you just mentioned, uh, yeah, Jim asked me to go down and check the site out, and that was in early March. And so I was one of the first paleo people, along with Wade Miller from BYU and a guy named Alden Hamblin, who specialized in, in footprints, and uh, went to visit the site. And uh, it was it was just amazing, the amount of footprints. Um, yeah, Jim kind of thought, you know, we'd be collecting a few things, and then that would be it. But we quickly realized how abundant tracks were at the site and also the incredible preservation of the tracks. Uh, I want to, uh, to jump in with some basic questions. You treat some of these in the book. Um, sometimes we think we know what things mean. 
I found myself having my knowledge clarified as I read through the book. Uh, so uh, I, I guess either one of you tackle this one. What is a fossil? Well, a fossil, by definition, is any remains or traces of ancient life. Um, uh, there's, there's common misconceptions that the word fossil and the word dinosaur are sort of are equivalent synonyms of one another, so that any fossil must automatically be a dinosaur. Uh, but there are fossils of uh, any living things, fossil plants, fossil fishes, fossil, fossil clams, fossil insects, even fossil bacteria of various kinds. Um, so it's just any remains, any traces of ancient life. And also, uh, from the book, the fossil doesn't mean extinct, right? It doesn't necessarily equate. Correct. Um, there are many things that we know of as fossils that are still alive today uh, as well. So um, uh, they may have fossil representatives, but the, the species are, themselves are not extinct. Uh, again, reading from the book, I didn't know this. You say how and why fossils form, that's not well understood. Uh, that's correct. It's it's um, a, it's a subject of, of of increasing amounts of research today. Uh, for a long period of time, we sort of assumed we knew how fossils formed, that they had to be buried underground, they had to be subjected to groundwater that would dissolve out some minerals and deposit new minerals and turn the uh, the organism's remains into rock. Um, but the exact how that happened uh, was not very well understood. And what we're actually learning now is that sometimes parts of those organisms that we thought could not possibly be preserved, uh, certain kinds of soft tissues, um, even biochemicals that are left inside the bones, those are getting preserved as well, not being turned into rock. They're actually being preserved as the original organic material. So if we don't have uh, the, you know, the best of understanding about how they form, I guess we wouldn't know the odds of something becoming a fossil. No, there's no real good way to calculate that until we know what all the factors are that would go into it. But um, best estimates are that it's uh, way less than one in a million, possibly even more than one in a billion. Um, I like to think of it that if uh, if every if if every organism's remains became fossils, even today we would be walking around on literally thousands and thousands and thousands of feet of dead remains. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. But be cool? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, um, it takes us back. Do you have a section in the book uh, talking about fossil laws? Um, I don't know, Andrew. Do you want to take this one? There, there are there are rules about what you yeah, that's can, right. Can take. Um, so, like like Jerry had mentioned with uh, uh, Dr. Johnson's discovery of the tracks. Of course, he found them on private land, and in the state of Utah, you can do whatever you like with what you find on your own property. Now, when it comes to federal and state land. Uh, there are laws, um, especially when it comes to vertebrate fossils. Basically, it's illegal uh, to collect um, or replicate. So in the, in the way of tracks, you're not allowed to do that on, on federal or state land without an issued permit from the government. You say in the book, uh, like encouraging words for people not to, I guess, steal or sell fossils, especially those found at, the, at your place there. Uh, yeah. it, it could be named after you. You discover it, turn it in, it could be named after you. Yeah, that's a possibility, um, and uh, you know that's that's happened with a few people that that I've known. Um, for example, the famous dinosaur Diabloceratops etoni was uh, discovered in Grand Staircase Esquimalt National Monument. It's a pretty amazing dinosaur skull with these big horns off the back of its head, and that was named after a paleontologist named Jeff Eaton. Um, and then there's many more examples uh, of that. You know, uh, fossils named after people, especially when they're new species. What's the name of that fossil again? Uh, Diabloceratops 
Etani. The, <laughs> the, the genus name means devil horned face. Yeah, yeah. And it's named after, after Jeff Eaton from Weber State University. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool having that named after yeah. uh, someone. Uh, let me turn uh, back to Jerry. Um, here's another basic question um, that I thought I had a pretty good handle on, but uh, learn something from the book. How do we know how old uh, rocks and fossils are? Uh, there's a couple of techniques. Uh, one is if you know the ages of uh, other fossils that occur in the same rock layer as the fossils you have found, uh, if those ages have been established elsewhere, then uh, we can correlate those to the rocks that you have discovered your fossils in and say that those are be the same age. Um, uh, now, that doesn't assign an actual number to the age. doesn't say that's 100 million or 200 million or you know, 500 million years old. It just says it's the same age as these other fossils. That's what we would call uh, relative dating uh, because it just gives you that relative comparable age. If you want to get an actual number on the date, you have to turn to what's called radiometric dating. Uh, now, this is it's a complicated technique, but basically you can take out individual crystals from certain kinds of rock, uh, igneous rocks, rocks that formed from lava or from liquid rock that come out of volcanoes, for example. Um, you can take individual crystals out of those uh, of certain minerals, uh, and these contain atoms of uh, certain uh, isotopes of both what's called the parent and the daughter. The parent is what it started out as originally, and the daughter is what it de decays into. These are radioactive isotopes, radioactive elements. And if you have that ratio, if you have that pr proportion of the parent to the daughter, you can then uh, count those up. We have machines that will literally vaporize the crystal and then count up the individual atoms. And once you know that ratio, that uh, you plug it into a mathematical formula, and that turns into the age. Are there some uh, strata, some rocks that are not datable, others that are? Uh, yes, uh, any that doesn't have uh, actual igneous material in it. Um, and that would be most of the rocks that actually have fossils in them. Most of the fossils are uh, in what we call sedimentary rocks, which are made out of bits and pieces of pre-existing rocks that get washed into some low place somewhere, and then over time they get compacted and turned into an actual rock. Uh, on rare occasions, if there's a volcanic ash that falls and rains down along with that sediment, then that ash can be extracted and dated. Uh, but there are many, many rock layers that have none of that in it, in which case we can't get an actual specific age for those particular layers. You just have to get a, a approximation? Yeah, you can find rock layers above or below that have those kinds of datable materials in them, uh, and that will sort of sandwich uh, the age of the, of the rock layer that you might be looking at, but that only constrains it a little bit. Let me ask uh, Andrew this question. Uh, ichnology, what, what's that? That's the study of trace, uh, traces so and, and trace fossils. So that's, um, basically tracks, burrows, uh, trails left by, by animals and invertebrates, and even the traces of plants. So like a, when, you, when you walk out in the desert and you see these circles left by plants blowing in the wind or impressions of the leaves pushed down in the sand, uh, those are identified as trace fossils. So ichnology is basically the study of animal and plant traces. So trace fossils as opposed to body fossils, where you actually, that, that's, I think, what we're more familiar with, right, the actual right. body of the, of the dinosaur or whatever it is. What's the advantage of uh, finding a trace fossil versus a body fossil? Well, uh, body fossils kind of give you an idea of what the animal looked like, um, and whereas the traces, you're seeing, uh, such as dinosaur tracks, you're seeing what the animal's doing while they're alive. So it can preserve uh, evidence of behavior. So running, walking, sitting, swimming, things like that. Um, so swimming. I, <laughs> I was surprised when I read that. 
because uh, swimming's in water, right? And uh, right. I wouldn't expect a fossil. I guess you have traces as, as they scrape the bottom or something? Right. So as these animals are basically buoyed up in the water, and as they're kicking their feet, their, tie, uh, their toes, the ends of the, their toes and claws will strike the muddy bottom, leaving, leaving uh, these elongate scrape marks. So... Um, at, at Johnson Farm, we've discovered we actually have the world's largest and best preserved collection of dinosaur swim tracks, and so far we've identified them in the thousands, um, mostly coming from one locality. Um, and the preservation is so good because of the high clay content in the sediment when the tracks were made uh, that we can see uh, details on the tips of the cuticle, um, impressions of, of the skin around the around the ends of the claws and marks uh, what we call scale scratch lines left by the scales on the animal's uh, toes as they pull, drag the toes through the mud. Well, the discoveries, I think, if I read it right, uh, it was thought, at least previously, that theropods were afraid of water. And uh, I guess there, Johnson Farm, you helped to dispel that? Right. So, yeah, yeah uh, dinosaurs were, you know, a lot of meat-eating dinosaurs for the longest time. You know, they, you would kind of see pictures of you know, old reconstructions of dinosaurs. Uh, so you've got your big plant eaters out at, going out into the water to avoid the predators. So a lot of people thought that the theropod dinosaurs were afraid of water, and now we're seeing the exact opposite. Um, as a matter of fact, we think there's good evidence to show that these animals were, in fact, uh, interested in going into the water to actually actively fish and things like that. That's one of the advantages, I guess, of, of a trace fossil. You can, you can see how the animal yeah. actually moved. Yes, exactly. Um, there's also evidence from the skeletons. So, for example, uh, the dinosaur spinosaurus from the uh, from the early Cretaceous of, of North Africa and Europe. Um, you know, the the shape of the skull and the teeth, and, and what we see in the skeleton, um, kind of indicates that these animals might be semi-aquatic and likely fed on fish. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and today's program is by request. We received an email from Alec in Southern Utah who wanted more science and specifically suggested we talk about dinosaurs. We're doing that on the program today. We're talking with Andrew Milner and Gerald Harris, authors of Tracks in Deep Time, the St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site at Johnson Farm. Following a break, we'll have more with them, and later in the program, state paleontologist Jim Kirkland will join us. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Coligan Water of Logan, serving Cache Valley for more than 66 years, providing Coligan bottled water, whole home systems, soft and conditioned water, and hay Coligan man service from the man in blue. Details at ColiganLogan.com. This is Learning Life's Lessons. My name is Nick Alvarado. I am from Fort Worth, Texas. My career afforded me the opportunity to travel to many countries around the world. A universal observation for anyone traveling is how a smile or saying hello and thank you in your host country's language will often open many doors and often make that first impression of an American visitor a positive one. I was taught a smile, a polite nod of my head, or a kind word will open so many more doors than a frown, look of indifference, or angry words directed at someone. Treat everyone as you would like them to treat you. Learning Life's Lessons on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU University Inn and Conference Center Summer Citizens Program, celebrating 40 years of living and learning at the top of Utah. Information at summercitizens.usu.edu.
are uh, talking about uh, a, a book out from University of Utah Press, Tracks in Deep Time, the St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site at Johnson Farm. And we're talking with the authors, Gerald Harris, who's Director of Paleontology in the Science Department, Dixie State University, and uh, Andrew Milner, who's Paleontologist and Curator at the St. George Dinosaur Discovery uh, Site at uh, Johnson uh, Farm. And uh, this program is uh, by request. Alec requested more science and uh, some talk about dinosaurs in Utah. So here you go, uh, Alec, and uh, enjoyable discussion here. Um, so, um, Jerry Harris, I wonder if you could uh, situate the the fossils there at the uh, at the site. Um, situate those in in geologic time for me. Uh, but our our current best estimate for the age of the fossils is that they're about literally almost about 200 million years old, 199, 200 million years old. Uh, and again, we haven't yet been able to date the rocks that the fossils are in directly, but this is based on the ages that are established for rocks that are both below and overlying the ones that have the fossils in them. So this is at the very, very beginning of the Jurassic period. Um, and this is a point in time when dinosaurs were really starting to become the dominant land animals on the planet. Um, prior to this, there were definitely were dinosaurs. There were dinosaurs going back to about 230, 235 million years ago, um, uh, not from around Utah, but uh, we do know them from elsewhere in the world. Um, but they were not the most common animals. They weren't the dominant animals. Most of the animals, the big land animals that were around at those points in time, uh, were actually much more closely related to today's crocodiles uh, than they are to the dinosaurs and the birds. Um, uh, but then around, right, literally right around 200 million years ago, something happened of which we're not quite sure, um, that caused, uh, uh, there was an extinction event and a lot of the big crocodile relatives went extinct and the dinosaurs really began to take over. So our fossils are literally marking that transition from, uh, the, the more crocodile dominated to the more dinosaur dominated, uh, periods of the Mesozoic era. This is a kind of a snapshot, which, which sounds yeah, weird in this, in the geological terms, but it, but that's the term you use. Yeah, it's a snapshot um, because it's so uh, because the fossils we have are so detailed and so well preserved and, and record uh, so much of the actual fauna, not not just the dinosaurs, but uh, the crocodiles that were around, the fishes, a lot of the invertebrate things that were around at the same time, um, and and all from literally within a tiny sandwich of of time, maybe a few thousands of years. The you mentioned extinction event. You don't know why this particular uh, these extinction events happen. This is this captures the imagination, right? Because it's um, you know we we hear about extinctions nowadays, kind of an ex, uh, acceleration of extinctions. Yeah, um, uh, studying fossil extinctions, these ancient extinctions based on fossils, uh, is an important branch of of science, important branch of paleontology. It's not just being studied for the sake of of studying them, uh, but it gives us a sense of why extinction events occur. Uh, and what we can largely conclude, based on what we know of from all the different extinction events throughout geologic time, uh, is that they're all caused by rapid climate change, uh, climate change that happens on a scale much faster than the rate of evolution can keep up with it. So organisms don't have an opportunity to adapt to the new changing environments, uh, so they go extinct. Um, and that's definitely what seems to be going on with a lot of today's extinction events. It's interesting that, uh, you know, some of these animals, uh, well, talking specifically about the uh, the insects, some of the insects uh, of which we have uh, trace or maybe body uh, fossils, uh, we'd still we'd have their descendants today. Others uh, hadn't developed yet. Yeah, uh, at this point in time, 200 million years ago, there were certain groups of insects that hadn't evolved yet. There were no butterflies, uh, bees had not evolved yet. 
um, uh, uh, things like flies and wasps were just starting to get going at this point in time. Um, other things like beetles and dragonflies, they've been around for quite a bit longer. Um, uh, uh, but some of the traces, uh, we don't specifically know exactly which, you know, we can't say, you know, this was this beetle or that beetle uh, made these particular traces. All we can say is that these are probably beetle traces of some sort. What uh, what I'd, I have to ask, this is just a personal thing, uh, mosquitoes? Were they ancient times? No, no mosquitoes more yet. No mosquitoes no. yet, okay. No. <laughs> Dinosaurs didn't have to deal with that, okay. Lots, probably lots of cockroaches running around. Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, yes. And, you know, the popular conception is cockroaches will outlive us as well. But um, I, One of the things that really strikes the imagination, at least my imagination, is this idea of a trace of fossil. It's uh, unlike a body fossil. It's, it captures movement, captures a moment in time. That uh, really strikes the, the, the fancy, the imagination. Yeah, and trace fossils, uh, in terms of their sheer numbers, are probably actually much more common than body fossils. Um, most people are more familiar, as you said, from, with body fossils because those are what most people go to museums to see. Most of the time they like to see a large mounted skeleton or you know, a body of something smashed flat into a slab of rock. Um, but the trace fossils are not only much more common, but the, as, as Andrew said, because they record traces of actual living animal behavior, uh, they're our primary way of determining how these animals behaved on a day-to-day basis, what they were capable of doing, what they were not capable of doing, um, uh, not that they capture every single behavior, but they give us a much better picture of what the day-to-day lives of these animals were like than the body fossils generally do. Tell me a bit about the, uh, you, you've talked a little bit, maybe expand a little bit about the, uh, either one of you, about the, the plants. We have, uh, I don't know if we have body fossils of plants, we, all, we, we have trace fossils as well. Right, so we, we do have uh, trace impressions of certain kinds of plants, uh, but we do have a couple of localities that have now been completely wiped out because of the construction, but we managed to sal- salvage hundreds and hundreds of specimens from these two localities. Um, what we see, most of the plants, most of them are very fragmentary, uh, but the most common kind are, are the conifers, so relatives of the modern pine and fir trees. Uh, we actually have three different species, four different species of conifers that we can identify. One kind is actually a, a, a type of cone scale, so it's individual scales that fall off the cones. We have a unique one that's called St. Georgia jansenii, uh, which is named after, of course, the town of St. George. Um, and then we have uh, fragmentary ferns and relatives of the, of the modern cycads as well. Oh, also but, horsetails. We have a, 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 the plant called the horsetail. Uh, we see evidence of those as well, kind of these reed-like plants. Yeah, but just, no flowering plants. Flowering plants wouldn't mm-hmm. evolve for another 70, 80 million years. Mm, interesting, right. interesting, yeah. yeah. Uh, so expanding the the range out from uh, you know from from downtown St George, which is you know still that's extraordinary there at the uh, the site. Uh, if you were to go out uh, you know a, a little ways, uh, can you can you easily find fossils? Yeah, no, I, yeah, all around the region, St George is basically built over a giant fossil site. Really, um, the formations both above and below. Uh, contain abundant tracks and in cer- certain places lots of body fossils. Um, there's, there's lots of localities in, in Zion National Park and uh, in, uh, uh, you know, further to the east as well as in the equivalent rock formations in Nevada and down in, in Arizona. So very rich in fossils. 
What uh, what makes that area? What makes an area um, likely to have uh, fossils so that, that that you can see that are that are exposed? Well, it's a combination of having the right kinds of rock that would contain fossils um, being exposed at the surface of the ground in a way that they're not covered up by soil, by buildings, by asphalt, or anything like that. Um, uh, St. George is, a, a geologically speaking, a, a structurally very, a fairly complicated area in the sense that we have lots of rocks that are, for, that are forming layers deep underground, but through various mountain building processes have been thrust up to the surface. Um, uh, tilted in many ways uh, uh, so that they're no longer flatline, um, but they're now exposed at the surface, and since we're in a desert environment here, there's not a lot growing on them. Uh, so that leaves a lot of great exposure for rock uh, that contains these fossils and makes it very easy to go out and find them. Just a few minutes left in the conversation. I wonder, from each of you, is there, I'm interested about horizons, uh, specifically there at site or overall in the field of paleontology. Uh, what are the one or two questions that are, are on your mind? Ooh, good question. Yeah, that is a good question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, the, the science of paleontology has really taken a number of, of very interesting turns thanks to all sorts of uh, advances in technology. Um, there's a whole new field now, what's called molecular paleontology, of people studying individual molecules uh, within preserved fossil bones and things, trying to determine um, uh, you know, their chemical compositions that we, uh, you know, not necessarily being able to reconstruct the actual animal from DNA, uh, at least not yet, but, but, you know, at least identifying individual biomolecules that are preserved within the bones. Uh, that's a booming, uh, field of paleontology, which is outside my particular specialty. Um, uh, uh, there are people who are using computers to scan dinosaur bones, uh, sort of undistort the ones that have been distorted by geologic pressures over time, uh, and use those to reconstruct the animal in, uh, in a much more accurate way than we could do by hand previously, um, and to understand the animals that way. Um, all sorts of complex computer methods for figuring out how the dinosaurs are related to one another, um, uh, and I've done some of that, and Andrew's done some of that as well. Um, but in terms of what you know, what we're specifically interested in, um, uh, a lot of work is being done lately with um, uh, uh, figuring out uh, more details about tracks. And I'll let Andrew address that. It's a process called photogrammetry. Exactly. That's that was my first choice. Is talking about photogrammetry. Uh, yeah, uh, Nefra Matthews from from the BLM in Colorado basically started doing a lot of this work. Originally, it started out taking photographs of petroglyphs. And what photogrammetry is? It's a 66% overlap of photographs. So you're taking kind of at 90 degrees from the surface that you're photographing, and then you apply this and you take all your photographs and put them into a computer program that meshes all the photos together in great detail. So it creates a three-dimensional model of the object that you're photographing. You can even do this with dinosaur skeletons and, and even little tiny teeth as well. Um, so basically, in the desert, when you're out and you find a big dinosaur track site, you can take hundreds and hundreds of photographs of the surface, bring it back to your, your museum or wherever, to your house, and create a 3D model that can then be shared with researchers all over the world. Also, as a, as a site's a road in the field, um, you're basically capturing that site as it looked. So basically you're preserving the site in many ways. So for me, that's something that I've become uh, greatly involved in, especially working on, on, on lots of footprints. Um, another thing that I'm really interested in and have been doing a lot of research with um, is actually the Triassic-Jurassic boundary. So this mass extinction that, you know, was one of the fifth largest, considered to be one of the fifth largest mass extinctions on the planet. 
So I've actually been looking at animals in the late Triassic and the early Jurassic and the different rock formations and, and basically looking at what's going on with different animals and plants across the Triassic-Jurassic boundary. Yeah, that all sounds uh, quite, uh, quite interesting. Um, yeah. Just a, a couple of minutes left. Um, I'd like to get some particulars of people are interested in visiting uh, the, uh, the, the, the site there in uh, St. George. It, it's downtown St. George? Easy to find? It's not yep, quite downtown. It's, uh, oh, it's not downtown. It's not all the way downtown. It, it's close. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's at 2180 East Riverside Drive. And uh, it's uh, they're actually building a brand-new Smith's Grocery Store that they call Dinosaur Crossing. So the call, <laughs> if you know St. George, it's right at very close to the corner of Mall and Riverside Drive. And it's, it's uh, for people coming for people coming from the north, just come down I-15, uh, get off at exit number uh, 10, which is the Washington uh, City exit. Um, turn left at the bottom of the exit ramp, follow the road for about two two and a half miles, and you can't miss the museum. Well, the book yeah. is uh, Tracks in Deep Time: The St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site at Johnson Farm. And we have with us, uh, have had with us the authors, Andrew Milner, who's paleontologist and curator at the St. George Discover- Dinosaur Discovery Site at Johnson Farm, and Gerald Harris, uh, who is the director of paleontology and in the science department at Dixie State University. Uh, gentlemen, uh, thanks so much. Right, thank you. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. And coming up following a break, we are going to continue our discussion about dinosaurs with state paleontologist Jim Kirkland. Stay tuned following this break. My name is Risa Ledbetter, and I'm a reporter for Utah Public Radio. I might be considered a nerd, but I love bringing you stories about some of the most exciting science happening in Utah. If you have comments, story ideas, or questions, I'd love to hear them. Please visit our website at upr.org or call us at 1-800-826-1495. You can also share ideas on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just be sure to include the hashtag IamUPR. Thanks for listening. The Management Minute is a service of the MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University. I'm Professor Scott Hammond. Have you ever had a meeting standing up? If you want a short information-only meeting, that's a good technique. How about a sit-down meeting that lasts for days and discovers and designs a new future for your company? These long dialogues are also a very valuable use of time. The key to a good meeting is to know why you are meeting, who needs to be in the room, and what you want to accomplish. That will help you design how you will get there. You don't use the same map for every journey, and you don't want to use the same meeting format for every meeting. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU John M. Huntsman School of Business One-Year Master of Business Administration, specializing in strategic business development and value creation, business analytics, and finance. Details at huntsman.usu.edu. This part of Access Utah will continue our discussion about dinosaurs in Utah. And this uh, program is by request. Let me remind listeners of that email. So uh, we received an email from our listener, Alec, in southern Utah. And uh, Alec said, I'll just read this again. My suggestion isn't really for a specific story, but rather an idea. We really need more science. Well, all the great history and book writing on Access Utah is nice. We need to be reminded just how well science is progressing in our own state even. A suggestion. Up in Salt Lake is Jim Kirkland, state paleontologist. And uh, man has, the man has discovered a great many dinosaurs, among them the famous Utah raptor. As we speak, he's working on freeing a family of that creature from a block of stone. 
Then Alec goes on to mention uh, a couple of great paleontologists in southern Utah. We've talked to them earlier in this hour. And uh, Alec uh, concludes, a shift to science will be very welcome in this current political and social climate necessary. So we have on the line Jim Kirkland, state paleontologist. Uh, welcome to the program. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Uh, uh, our dinosaurs are the best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Uh, so this, this role, I, does every state have a state paleontologist? Um, there are several, several do. North mm-hmm. Dakota, New York has one, uh, Ohio, uh, uh, let's see, uh, uh, Wyoming. Uh, uh, so there's, there's a number of states, uh, uh, some that warrant it, some not so much. <laughs> Okay. Nevada, I think, has one now. Right. But not every state. Um, so uh, you were telling my producer, I hope I got this right, Utah has the most dinosaur fossils of anywhere except China? Yeah, we have more dinosaur species for sure than any other state in the nation. And if you total them all up, you know, something on over 100 different taxa, you know, the only country in the world that has more is China. Wow. Oh, Other, you know, we're within the U.S., of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, tell me about the um, the Utah Raptor. We, and we've heard uh, a fair bit about it, but I I'm uh, I want kind of an update. What uh, first of all the the discovery? You were you involved in the discovery? Yeah, yeah. I, I named the thing originally in 1993. Uh, first came across it in uh, 1989. Uh, well, actually, it was it was 1990. Uh, the site came across in '89 thanks to uh, Rob Gaston who had discovered it, leading us in there. Uh, but as we excavated uh, some armored dinosaurs in the site, a thing we ended up naming Gastonia, uh, we found uh, parts of a meat-eating dinosaur, not real unusual, until we came across this big sickle claw, this big blade-like claw that these things have on their hind leg, and realized it was twice the size of the biggest one known in the world at the time. And, uh, and not too long after that, within a few months, discovered that uh, the movie Jurassic Park had decided to inflate their uh, velociraptors up to the size of a Utah raptor, so, which is a pretty interesting coincidence. Yeah, yeah. Did they know about the Utah raptor, or they just wanted it no, bigger? Not to begin with, okay, not when yeah. they inflated it. Uh, yeah. I was in, uh, I'd worked for a group at the time called Dynamation International, and I was in California, and there's a, there was a dinosaur club group, a lot of scientists and, and movie people involved in this thing. And I was there and had a replica of the claw in my shirt pocket, passing around. This guy pulls out this, this claw and says, well, here's the one from the movie we're working on. Mm-hmm. And mine was a little bigger than theirs, but uh, and certainly more accurate. Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, that's when I first got wind that they were going to make their animals double the size of what they were in the book that Crichton had written. Right. Uh, Crichton wrote it accurately. Oh, okay. Okay, gotcha. Uh, I, always, I always look at the movie accuracy as distance from Crichton. Oh, okay. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> that brings me to my next question, uh, you know, uh, with, with our dinosaurs and the popular imagination. A lot of life. Various kinds of life during the periods where the dinosaurs lived, dinosaurs capture our attention. Why do you think that is? Well, they're you know they're big animals. Of course, you know the famous Tyrannosaurus rex, which does occur in Utah. Uh, you know, you have an animal that's probably running five to seven tons, with teeth as big as bananas that are biting through the bones of big horned dinosaurs. I mean, it's a true monster. I mean, 
You know, this is an animal, you know, that would easily take out an elephant. There's nothing on earth today that would kill an elephant. This this a Tyrannosaurus would have no problem. And even things like Utah Raptor were built to attack animals as big as elephants. Hmm. Uh, so these these are you know in terms of the meat-eating dinosaurs true monsters, but when you look at the armored dinosaurs, you know their spectacular arrangements of spines and frills and and whatnot. The long-necked dinosaurs, which you know they're animals that are well over a hundred feet long and on the order of you know forty fifty tons in body weight. You know this grass here, there's nothing like that on Earth today. Mm. Uh, and you know just where we like to teach science is. You know what? What's the physics of an animal that big? You know how do you get blood up to the brain and uh, other things? So these things are have become an incredible gateway science for young people. I don't know how many doctors I've met hmm. over the years that told me, "Oh yeah, when I was a kid, I liked dinosaurs." And a lot of our medical establishment are uh, you know we're young dinosaur fans. <laughs> Interesting, interesting. Problems like that, which which I have to confess, I've, I've never th- thought about uh, the, the actual physics and the biology of it. Uh, maybe take me through that. What uh, what are the? Well, theories? when you look at the the big animals, you know, Brachiosaurus or the biggest by North American sauropod, Alamosaurus, which occurs up in the North Horn Formation of Central Utah. You know, these animals. You know, T. Rex barely gets to its shoulder. I mean, these are huge massive animals you know they're they're on the edge of what probably is the maximum weight a land living animal could possibly get to in fact if we hadn't discovered these animals as fossils you know with with good skeletons uh i don't think anyone would believe that animals that are in the weight you know range of whales could be walking around on land and being very successful at it they were a very important group of plant eaters for almost 100 million years uh, you know, we don't think of them going all the way to the end, but Alamosaurus was preyed on by Tyrannosaurus rex here in Utah. So we have big sauropods uh, interacting with you know our largest carnivores. Mm. But it's, we have a, you know such an amazing record of these things that these things now have a history. Mm. You know, you know, when you talk about Jurassic Park, that's one snapshot. Now in Utah, we recognize 27 sequential, non-overlapping snapshots uh, showing the history of these animals. And nowhere else in the country do we have this. Hmm. Uh, are there uh, fossils, uh, species unique to Utah? Oh, many. Mm-hmm. Utah raptors unique to Utah, Gastonia. In fact, the two oldest Cretaceous faunas, and the fauna is all the animals that live together, not just dinosaurs, but the birds and the frogs and the fishes, uh, etc. The two oldest Cretaceous faunas in North America only occur in Grand County, Utah. Nowhere else yeah. in the whole continent. Amazing, yeah. Yeah, and it's because of you know uh, salt uh, that was buried there and the salt moving, causing a, a basin to form when there was erosion everywhere else. Uh, we didn't know this just the past year. We kind of put this together and realized why we're getting these animals there. But no, we we have 50 or so dinosaurs known nowhere else and, uh, uh, that occur in Utah at this point. And there's there's probably 20, 25 that haven't been named yet in labs at the moment. I uh, I was interested to learn that um, there's a way for people to participate, even if they're not scientists. Uh, so there's a GoFundMe project, Utah Raptor Project. What's uh, tell me about that? Well, you know, we were 
fortunate enough that a geology student working with us uh, found what he thought was a human arm bone sticking out of the rock. It turned out to be a toe bone of Utah raptor. And as we excavated the site, we realized we had dozens of skeletons of small, medium, and large uh, Utah raptor in this, this site where uh, we now have interpreted it as being a dewatering feature or for the public quicksand, you know, where this massive number of animals were caught in this this you know, upwelling of water on the shore of a lake and got trapped. And then when the water pressure let off, the thing collapsed, burying these skeletons. We were able to collect the thing intact, a nine-ton block, and we brought it down to the North American Museum of Ancient Life at Thanksgiving Point in Lehigh. It's in their lab now. They've, you know, they've strengthened the floors under this thing. Uh, unfortunately, we need to raise the money uh, to pay the, you know, someone qualified enough to work on the thing in the lab. Uh, this lab's, you know, 20 something miles from my offices, and as the state paleontologist of Utah, our responsibilities are, are more focused on things that bring in money to Utah directly, you know, from Park Service and Bureau of Land Management projects. You know, we have to c cover our own expenses. So this project, we're trying to raise outside money. Uh, and we've came up with this GoFundIt site. I noticed uh, this touched my heart. A uh, someone named Tyler, I'm at the GoFundMe site here, uh, says my son Henry wanted to donate a portion of his birthday money, so they, they sent in twenty five dollars. I guess that's oh, <laughs> that's we, we had something close to. I think I, yeah. I mean you probably have the number right there in front of you, but it's probably close to 150 different people have donated money, and donations have ranged everything from a thousand dollars to ten dollars. Uh, that people have uh, contributed toward this this process, and some of it we've had to spend up front just to buy equipment we needed. Uh, this has to be prepared. The babies, you know, there are a lot of babies in this site, and those bones are tiny and delicate, as well as the big adult Utah raptors, and have to be done under a microscope. Hmm. So we had to get a uh, medical uh, microscope system big boom arms that you can bring out suspend, you know, in a, in a hospital over an uh, operating table, in the case of this, over this giant block, so you can look down through the microscope and, and do this stuff under high magnification. And some of this stuff, even though we bought the equipment used, was still fairly pricey. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're now set up, and and the process is, is beginning to go. And, and people should definitely visit uh, Thanksgiving point and and see what uh, is starting to be un unveiled in this block. Yeah, interesting. Uh, but we're a long way from having it fully funded uh, uh, to get uh, the the new skeletons out of the block. Right. I wonder if you could uh, maybe expand on that. That was very interesting. Your connection. You say the, you've had doctors come up to you and say their interest in that field started with their interest in uh, dinosaurs and studying uh, science in in that way. So that's a that's a very that's a real world application. You know, we can't all be paleontologists, but apparently kids, this is a, a, a gateway. Dinosaur paleontology is one of the, the real gateway sciences. You know, kids, it's one of the things that gets kids into libraries under their own steam, looking up information about dinosaurs, these you know, amazing creatures that often kids, you know, first get exposed to, you know, maybe on a Saturday morning cartoon. And all of a sudden they realize these are real, these aren't imaginary, and they start uh, to try to find out more information about it. And they move into all kinds of areas of biology, start looking about modern animals, uh, medicine. You know, for natural history sciences, 
dinosaurs are a great gateway, and uh, for technology, the space program. You know, I, I figured dinosaur paleo uh, earns the little money that is actually put toward it uh, by getting kids interested in science, and the space program, in my mind, clearly pays for itself by getting people interested in technology. Mm. Uh, you know, these are really important for our society. <laughs> Are these uh, are, are these being? Uh, I guess which way is this going? Is this, this holding steady in terms of teaching paleontology in the schools? Is it? Is this... Yeah, it's in Utah. Of course, we're we're in, we're in quite good shape. We've had a you know a dinosaur program tied to generally fourth grade level in the state uh, for many years. I mean, it's part of the curriculum, getting kids to think about deep time. And the you know the kind of history we have Utah Geologic uh, Survey we have teaching kits that we distribute to the schools in this area to uh, help the teachers uh, cover some of these areas that they might not be expert in. Uh, but uh, yeah, the the attention we get here in Utah is really good. I'm I'm really pleased on it. This weekend at Bryce Canyon they're having their geology festival uh, and. As they do every year, their keynote speakers are paleontologists uh, talking about, in this case, they're talking about the ocean in the Cretaceous down in the, the Bryce Canyon area and the kind of creatures are living in that sea. Hmm. Uh, but events like that occur everywhere. We have more museums or uh, interpretive sites in Utah than any other state in the nation as well. Hmm. It's a primary source of tourism dollars. What's uh, what excites you? What's out there? What an unanswered question uh, has really got you well, going? Well, you know, we're still way down on the learning mm -hmm. curve. I mean, it's you know, I mean, I've got a bunch of new animals coming out that we're working on in our own lab, and uh, very excited about it. But we've been using dinosaurs in Utah to date the origins of Alaska, the first migrations between Asia and dinosaurs and North American dinosaurs. Uh, we've also been using it to uh, uh, date the final opening of the North Atlantic, separating Europe from uh, North America. And since we have this, the best record of anywhere in the, on the continent of these things, we're using the dinosaurs in Utah to precisely date when we stop seeing European things uh, coming in and when we first start to see the Asian animals appearing. Uh, in fact, I just got back from China uh, they brought me over to, you know, to help them interpret some of their sites, and we've also done a lot of work with our Spanish colleagues uh, because Utah's the keystone for understanding the entire northern hemisphere during mm. the Mesozoic. Oh, it's amazing, amazing. And, and this, these new discoveries are, you know, we're we're moving up the learning curve. We're still looking way up there. Uh, kids uh, today that are just being born uh, will have opportunities to discover many new dinosaurs in Utah. Yeah, a, a, a wonderful opportunity. I want to ask a, a, a you know, forgive a, a pop culture question, but this is, uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one. And you probably, this is not the first time you've got this, I'm sure. So it's a Jurassic Park question. Is how sure. how far are we away from the genetic engineering, you know, scenario, nightmare in that in that case? Um, well, basically, uh, I think we'll, we'll get DNA of a dinosaur, uh, about the same time I get my time machine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, gotcha. They're doing they're doing genetics mm. with chickens and things where they're getting chickens to grow a tail. You know, they can get chickens now to grow teeth. 
uh, you know, so they can get, you know, since, you know, chickens are descended, they're dinosaurs, basically, they're surviving dinosaurs. In fact, the surviving dinosaurs, number of species outnumber mammals. Uh, so they're still a very successful group because birds are just a subgroup of dinosaurs uh, that survived the extinction. But uh, they're back, you know, they're doing genetic uh, manipulation with birds. And even though they'll, they probably are going to be able to make some things that look a bit like a dinosaur, meat-eating type of dinosaur, they're still kind of hopeful monsters, in my opinion. I think, mm. you know, we're, we're starting to fringe on the ethics of what we should be doing, mm. you know, with living organisms there. But, uh, you know, where you know, people have an ability to manipulate things, they will. We'll, we'll, we'll see mammoths and woolly rhinos uh, coming up in probably the next decade. We'll probably certainly see our first uh, resurrected mammoth. Mm. They're much, much younger than dinosaurs. Okay. Now, you mentioned the, the, you know, alluded to the ethics. Do you think the ethics is going to keep pace with the with the science? Well, that's, you know, that's up to our culture to, to some extent. It's like, you know, what, you know, do you, you know, want to do? I'm not, I'm not against GMOs, you know, I mean, you know, genetically modifying things that we eat and, and deal with is, you know, what we've done with breeding, you know, since day one. So that's not that's not really an issue. But it's when you're making animals that aren't, you know, viable to see what you can do. You know, that get, that gets to be a little dicey. Mm. Uh, you know, you know, you know, is that ethical to make something that? You know, you're you're keeping alive. You've made you know chicken grow teeth and a tail, or develop uh, fingers instead of wings. Uh, you know, you know the hopeful monster uh, scenario. You know, makes me cringe a bit. Hmm. Uh, you know, I think there's some things we should think about real long and hard before we do it. Finally, I just wanted to give you a little bit of time here, uh, briefly, to mention Utah Friends of Paleontology. It's the way people can get involved. Yeah, Utah. You know, we have uh, a wonderful volunteer organization in Utah, Utah Friends of Paleontology, with chapters in Moab and Vernal and St. George, and here in Salt Lake City, going, you know, including the Provo area to the south. And our, our chapter up here, of course, we, we meet here at the Utah Geologic Survey at the second Thursday of each month, and we bring in guest speakers. We have training programs within Utah Friends of Paleontology where people can learn the skills so they can work with scientists uh, in you know real scientific settings. Uh, I mean, if it wasn't for volunteers, we couldn't afford to get anything done. Uh, uh, there isn't a lot of money in this, but there's a lot of interest. So the citizens of Utah have been the backbone of most of these discoveries that we've been making over the last couple of decades. Uh, so it's it's pretty exciting stuff. People can get more information by just go to uh, utahpaleo.org on the Internet and link into the site. And uh, there's some great opportunities. But we do have a, a code of ethics, and we're trying to get people to be a part of the real deal, not just going out headhunting, because that's not how it works anyway, uh, but to actually join scientists. And in some cases, UFOP volunteers have had dinosaurs named after them and have been co-authors on important scientific papers. You know, it really depends on what people want, but we've had lots of kids involved as well as, as adults uh, through retirement. Well, we've reached the end of our time. Uh, Jim Kirkland, Utah State paleontologist, has uh, been with us. Thank you so much. Hi, you're very welcome.
And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Next time on Living on Earth, dangerous radioactive waste is piling up at U.S. nuclear plants. This storage at the reactor sites was envisioned to last for only a few decades. That's certainly not an acceptable long-term solution. But Finland says it's found a permanent solution. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau presenting Living History at the American West Heritage Center featuring mountain men, pioneers, and turn-of-the-century farmers. Activities include pony rides, tomahawk throwing, and ragdoll making. Information available at explorelogan.com. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.